I'm James Gould, and you're listening to The Recess Course. Today on The Recess Course, we're going to be talking about ASA toxicity. ASA is a really common medication. We see lots of patients on it, but we rarely see patients that come in with toxicities. But when we do, we really need to know how to manage these because they can get really sick. And there's some subtleties of their management that you need to be aware of. So today we're going to talk about, you know, how do we identify those patients and how do we manage them? We're lucky today to have Dr. Lori Beattie on the show. Lori is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Dalhousie University. She is a poison center consultant with the Atlantic Canadian Poison Center. She's a hyperbarics consultant and an EHS medical consultant. And finally, she's the assistant program director at the Royal College program uh, at Dalhousie University. Lori, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, James. So what we're going to do today is we'll review a case, a terrible ASA overdose, and then we'll work through some questions and you'll drop some pearls. How's that sound? I'll do my best. So we got a 26-year-old female. She's brought into the eMERGE by EMS. She called 911 after taking approximately 75 regular strength ASA tablets. So that's 325 milligrams. She found in her parents' bedroom about four hours ago. She weighs approximately 60 kilos, so that gives us about 40 millig- 400 milligrams per kilogram. She's confused with a GCS of 14. Uh, heart rate's 120. Blood pressure is 120 on 85. Her SATs are 97% on room air. And she's got a respiratory rate that seems quite elevated at approximately 35. Her temperature is 38.4. So obviously a, a sick girl and uh, what we know to be a terrible overdose. But it, just in hearing that case, what are, what are your immediate thoughts? Yeah, fair. So my first thought is that I'm like pretty excited because I have to say ASA is one of my favorite toxins. I'm a bit nerdy and I love the pathophysiology of how a lot of these toxins work. And ASA is a really interesting one because of all of the metabolic effects it has. My second thought is in thinking about managing this department um, and this patient in our department is that she sounds fairly sick. And although we have good treatment for ASA toxicity, it can be it can be a lot. So it can be difficult for the patient to tolerate all the things that we need to do to help them. And it's also very nursing heavy. So I'm thinking about, do we have the nursing capacity to manage this patient and where are we best going to be able to take care of her? And how are we going to be able to help her tolerate all the therapies that she's going to need to get through this ingestion? Mm, Yeah. We don't see a lot of these, um, which is kind of interesting because you know, almost every single patient that we encounter in the eMERGE is on, you know, some amount of aspirin. Uh, but how much ASA ingestion makes you worried? Like what's the milligrams per kilogram or amount ingestion when we actually need to start worrying about severe toxicity? Yeah, good question. I agree, James. I think my father-in-law is the only person I've ever met in my life who uses ASA as a pain medication. Um, Most people are on that 81 milligram dose. Uh, Unlike Tylenol, where it's so common that I just think of the like you know, seven grams at once, four grams a day kind of toxicity. With ASA, I do tend to calculate a milligram per kilogram. And so the number that starts to make me worry is once people get above that 150 milligrams per kilogram. Below that dose, it's very unlikely that they're going to have any um, negative consequence from the ASA. But above 150, we can start to see them become symptomatic. And above 300 is where uh, the symptom, they're going to have more moderate symptoms. And then above that 500 milligrams per kilogram threshold is where patients can be really severely ill. So 150 to start worrying and above 300 is where it really gets my attention. Uh, we talk about decontamination with, with those patients that we are worried about and other, other toxicities. Is 
Is there any role for gastric decontamination in a patient like this, whether or not that's charcoal or, um, you know, I don't think we do this for really anyone, but lavage, things like that? Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen gastric lavage used or recommended through our poison center. You need kind of special equipment, special NG tubes to do those. They're not without harm. There's a risk of aspiration and and people just don't have experience with it anymore. And so I think I would save gastric lavage for someone who took an enormous amount of a known fatal toxin that I couldn't treat. And aspirin doesn't necessarily fit that category because we know we can treat aspirin toxicity. Charcoal, absolutely. And the neat thing about aspirin, I guess, is that it can have really delayed absorption. Aspirin is often enteric coated and so it forms clumps in the stomach and small intestine. It also causes pyloric spasm and so you can have delayed emptying of the stomach. And so you can get really erratic absorption of the medication. It's not predictably absorbed. And so not only is charcoal a great idea and should be given ideally within one hour, but we actually use multiple dose charcoal in these patients. So we redose it at a half dose every four to six hours, knowing that there's going to be continued erratic absorption of the ASA and trying to prevent that as much as possible. Oh, interesting. Just in terms of, uh, to deviate here a little bit, just in terms of like, what do you expect over the next couple hours for this patient? So, you know, they're confused, uh, tachycardic, they're hemodynamically stable at the moment and clearly have this really high respiratory rate. What do you expect to happen with their vitals or with their lab work? And clinically, what do you think that you're going to see over the next couple hours in terms of um, that patient's natural history of this overdose? Yeah, great question. I'm quite worried about her already. Typically, even when we see aspirin toxicity, I think of it as in two camps. Younger people who've taken an intentional overdose and come in fairly soon afterwards where they may develop a toxic level but don't have really significant symptoms. And then the other group I think we tend to see is older patients where it's been missed, either an intentional or unintentional overdose when it's an elderly patient with delirium and fever, NYD. And unless we send that ASA level, it's just not on our radar. Knowing that this patient uh, took a, a large dose of ASA and that she's already symptomatic, I'm worried that without intervention, she's going to develop progressive acidosis over the next few hours. That acidosis allows more of the salicylate to get into the CNS, which is really what kills people, right? They develop cerebral edema and seizure, coma death, the final spiral of all of our toxins. And so I'm worried that without intervention, this lady is going to deteriorate from a mental status point of view. It's going to worsen her respiratory drive, which is going to decrease her ability to compensate the acidosis. And then if she becomes more severely acidotic, is going to start to develop cardiac instability. These patients can sometimes develop uh, pulmonary edema as well from really high doses. So in terms of, let's talk about some of that stuff that you're going to do to try to intervene on, on that sort of spiral and intervene on her getting all of that bad stuff that you talked about. So a urine alkalinization always comes up with ASA overdoses. Would you consider it in, in this in this patient and and logistically how do we how do we actually do that? Uh, I would consider it in this patient for sure. I think anyone who's taken an aspirin overdose with a, a level above 2.2, we haven't talked about levels yet in this lady, but obviously we would have sent off a bunch of lab work, including an ASA level. So a level above 2.2 or signs or symptoms of psilocylism, which she's showing, or any acid-base abnormality, which she almost certainly has, I would I would start urine alkalinization. And practically, that's going to be done with sodium bicarb. We're going to take three amps, or the crash cart uh, ampules of sodium bicarb, 8.4%. Those are 50 mLs each. We're going to put three of them into a bag of D5W. 
that gives us a liter with about 150 millimoles of, of sodium bicarb, which is very similar in osmolality to normal saline. If the patient is dehydrated or looks hypovolemic at all, we're going to start them with a bolus, either of that bicarb solution we've made or normal saline. And then we're going to run that sodium bicarb intravenously at a rate of about twice IV maintenance, or if we're feeling lazy, somewhere between 200 and 250 mLs per hour. We're going to titrate that, aiming for a urine output of uh, at least 2 mLs per hour. And then we're going to follow urine pH and serum pH to make sure that we're actually achieving the, the alkalinity that we want. Practically, the getting the fluids into the patient is really easy. And where I often see patient uh, uh, healthcare providers struggle is getting the urine alkalinized. There's going to be two things that hold you back. The first one is if the patient is significantly dehydrated, they're not going to diurese when you give them IV fluids, and so they're not going to have an alkalotic urine output. The second thing is that if the patient is hypokalemic, if their potassium is low, then their kidneys are preferentially going to hold on to potassiums and give up hydrogens in place of them because their body is trying to not become more hypokalemic. And so a hypokalemic patient, it's going to be almost impossible to alkalinize their urine because they're going to be shedding hydrogen ions in the urine. And so it's important to make sure that patients are well well hydrated before you try and alkalinize their urine. And it's also really important to manage their potassium level. My goal is to keep patients' potassium, you know, above 3.5 or ideally above 4 when we're giving this treatment. And so I tend to advocate for putting the 40 mil equivalents of potassium into that bag of sodium bicarb that we've mixed so that you're replacing IV potassium as they pee. And then also if their um, CNS level and, and nausea will allow it to give them oral potassium on a regular basis, even every one hour in addition to the IV fluids. If they have reasonable kidneys, they're going to tolerate that potassium load and it's going to prevent them getting into the hypokalemia, which is going to make the alkalinization very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Great pearl. What, um, in terms of the actual target for urine alkalinization, so a, a greater than seven, five or so? Yeah. Seven, five to eight, five is your goal. Yep. And you can often test that just with a little urine dipstick that we use as a bedside urinalysis that has a pH range on it. Yep. We should be checking that every like 15 to 30 minutes initially as we're starting the alkalinization to make sure that we're getting to our target. And so these patients are probably going to benefit from a Foley catheter because they're going to be getting a lot of fluids and we're going to be asking for really frequent urine samples. Nice. You mentioned that um, the amount of salicylate that gets taken up uh, cerebrally is dependent on the serum pH as well. So what, what are you targeting for serum pHs for these patients and, and how often are you checking in on, the, on their blood gas to see if you've accomplished that? Yeah, great question. So we want to avoid acidosis in these patients at all costs. That allows the drug to ionize more easily and move across the blood-brain barrier. And so ideally a pH above 7.4. Sometimes running these bicarb drips, the pH can get up. And we'll tend to tolerate a pH as high as 7.55 or even 7.6 in order to help alkalinize the urine and get them diuresing, but definitely not below 7.4. We talk about this idea of neuroglycopenia. You can tell us a little bit about that and, and which patients you're going to give boluses of glucose to. Yeah, it's an interesting one and not super well understood. I don't think that there yet exists good guidelines on how to manage it. But basically the idea is that with salicylism, the metabolism of the brain changes such that the brain is using up more glucose than 
than it typically would. And the psilocyte itself also prompts glycolysis, glycolysis. So there are less glucose stores available to the brain. And so patients can become hypoglycemic in their CNS still with a normal glucose level in the blood. That's a little bit hard to know because it's not like we're going to be LPing them to check their CSF glucose. And yeah. it's not reliably predictable at a certain level. And so I would encourage people to keep, certainly avoid hypoglycemia in, in patients, try to run their glucose on the higher level of normal. And I would say anyone with CNS symptoms, whether it be like confusion, depressed level of consciousness, seizure, or coma, I would advocate for giving dextrose boluses to see whether you see some improvement in the in the level of consciousness because that depressed level of consciousness could be related to neurohypoglycemia. Yeah, uh, that's great. How many boluses might you give before you say, yeah, this is just, this is just because of the drug. It's not neuroglycopenia. Like would you give two, three boluses and then stop <laughs> if there was no response? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Like I, I would use amps of D50 in this case, cause we know it's going to give us a, a quick response and increase their glucose quickly. I would say after two or three amps of D50, if you've really seen no change in their CNS, then it's likely the acidosis or the salicylate itself, the, itself that's causing the depressed level of consciousness, but I don't think will cause harm um, right. giving those two or three amps in patients. What about other managements? I mean, you know, we talked about urine alkalization. We talked about giving uh, rehydration and giving glucose. Any other specific medical treatments that you can do for these patients? We need to monitor these patients pretty aggressively. They're going to be getting their urine pH checked every like 30 to 60 minutes. We're going to be checking blood pH, blood gases every hour and following the potassium closely because a lot of what we're doing to these patients will drop through potassium. And then we're going to want to follow the salicylate level every couple of hours as well to make sure it's trending down. And so from a monitoring point of view, if you have a facility that can manage it, I think a Foley catheter and an art line or a central line in these patients can be really helpful for the nurses and helpful for the patient for those really frequent blood draws if you have that capacity to do that. The other thing that I'll often consider in these patients if their level of consciousness will tolerate is whole bowel irrigation. Because we talked about those salicylate tablets can form uh, concretions or bezoars in the GI system and just cause this profoundly long, um, slow uptake of, of salicylate. So if we can hold out, irrigate these patients with the charcoal mixed in every four to six hours and try and get those tablets out of their GI system, it will shorten the duration of treatment that they need. And then the last thing to consider if all of the other things we're doing is not helping the patients deteriorating clinically, it would be hemodialysis. Mm. Let's talk about that. What are the sort of indications? Like when would you be calling nephrology for a patient like this? I think earlier is definitely better, particularly if you're working at a facility where there isn't emergency hemodialysis available. As with anything in talks, these patients who might need a higher level of care, I like to see them transferred earlier rather than later before they get really sick and the transport becomes more complicated. But certainly I would be thinking about hemodialysis in any patient with severe symptoms. So those would be things like coma, significantly depressed level of consciousness, um, seizure, evidence of cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, a severe acidosis that's not responding to your treatment, or patients with things like heart failure or renal failure that are going to prevent you from being able to give the volumes of fluid you need to alkalinize their urine. 
we think about some levels, so a, a level of above 6.6 in acute ingestions or a level above 4.3 in chronic ingestions with symptoms would be considered for dialysis. And then some sources, including the XTRIP guidelines, will advocate for dialyzing anybody with a level above 7.2. Is there sort of from the outset um, a certain amount that would be considered predictable that the patient's going to require uh, dialysis. I'm just thinking about the, you know, the clinician, the resuscitationist in the community who doesn't have dialysis available to them, but, you know, they want to try to figure out what patients they need to arrange for transport early. You know, is there a sort of a sense of an amount of gestion, but not yet significantly symptomatic that they should just, you know, move forward with the transport towards a dialysis center? Yeah, I think if if we had like a reported or known ingestion above that 500 milligrams per kilogram level, we know those patients tend to get really sick. So I'd be inclined to move them out. Um, However, with with good prompt treatment, like with charcoal, whole bowel irrigation, early alkalinization before the serum level gets too high, sometimes often we can avoid dialysis in these patients. But but those really big ingestions... If I was in a small center myself, I'd be inclined to move them to a dialysis-capable center early before they start to get really yeah. sick. Nice. Um, the the sort of elephant in the room with ASA overdoses seems to be this idea of intubation. And, you know, there's a number of reasons why this is, you know, one of those significantly physiologically difficult uh, airways. And we always talk about trying to avoid intubation in these patients. Can you talk a little bit about that? And... Um, and then maybe move on to, you know, if you were pushed in to bait them, how you might go about that. Yeah, sure. So, so you're right. These um, aspirin patients, overdose or salicylate overdose patients fall into that category of apnea intolerant. With aspirin, we know initially patients develop this respiratory alkalosis. The respiratory goes way up based on the salicylates and that causes them to diurese a lot of the bicarb that they're going to wish they had later on um, to compensate for the respiratory alkalosis. As the toxin progresses, they start producing a number of different acids, lactate, pyruvic acid, ketones, the salicylate itself, that causes a metabolic acidosis that they can't buffer as well as as you or I could sitting here today because they've diuresed a lot of the bicarb that they need for that buffering. And so they have less ability to compensate from a metabolic point of view and are really, really reliant on their respiratory drive in those later stages of poisoning to compensate for the acidosis. And as we talked about, worse acidosis and salicylate uh, toxicity means worse symptoms and outcomes for the patient. And so with intubating, the risk with intubating, particularly with an RSI, is we're going to stop that respiratory drive for a period of time and allow the patient to develop worsening acidosis because they're not compensating. And so when thinking about intubating these patients, we really have to avoid hypoventilation at all costs. In an ideal situation, uh, one could consider an awake intubation. But in these patients, if we're moving to intubate them, it's probably because their level of consciousness is declining to the point that they're no longer going to be able to cooperate with an awake. And so we're going to be pushed towards RSI. In that case, there's a couple kind of special things that I consider in these patients. The first one is consider giving bolus doses of bicarb before intubation. You know, the evidence in general isn't great out there for that. But in this case, if I can give them an amp or two of bicarb and boost their serum pH just a tiny bit to temporize for that minute or two that they're going to have decreased breast rate, I think that's going to help protect their brain. The second thing is that you want a really fast induction. So you want to be choosing really good doses of your induction agent and, and 
paralytic agent to get the patient unconscious as quickly as possible and ready to intubate as quickly as possible. And in theory, in these patients, you could even consider giving your paralytic like rock before the induction agent of, say, ketamine. We know the onset of ROC is a little bit slower than ketamine, and so it's going to buy you just those few seconds of getting the patient intubation ready. And then third, these are patients that I'm going to for sure have a manometer on my bag, and I'm going to ventilate these patients during their apneic period, making sure not to... um, increase airway pressures enough that I'm going to open the esophageal sphincter and risk regurgitation. But these are patients who are not going to tolerate the apnea. So I will do gentle bag mask ventilation during that apneic period. You obviously want to have a very experienced intubator in the room so that you're going to get that tube in as quickly as possible. And you need to have an RT standing by with the vent in these patients who understands the necessity of having a really big minute ventilation once the tube is passed. And so you'll sometimes even hear described putting these patients on BiPAP prior to ventilation to intubation to get an idea of what their minute ventilation is because that's the minute ventilation they're going to want after the tube is in. So the RT knows what vent settings they're aiming for once the tube is in. But this is not a case where you intubate the patient once the tube is in, have your med student squeeze the bag and call for RT. You want to have all that stuff mm-hmm. ready to go before the um, induction drugs are passed. Nice. And so RT is probably going to do something like, you know, the targeting whatever minute ventilation they had pre-intubation, if you know that based on the patient being on BiPAP. And that's, you know, more than likely going to be a really high respiratory rate with relatively lung protective cc's per kilo, you know, as fast as the patient can breathe on the ventilator without air trapping. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that sounds right. And luckily most of these patients you know, we're intubating for a CNS point of view, not for a cardiopulmonary point of view. And so we don't, most of them aren't going to tend to have severe heart failure or bad pneumonia or severe COPD or some other lung disease that's going to make ventilation difficult. So that's exactly right. Uh, High respiratory rate and on the higher range of volume, making sure that we're not increasing the volume so much that's going to cause alveolar injury. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, listen, is there anything else that we need to think about with these? Anything that we missed with this case? I think the only other thing to keep in mind is that because of that erratic absorption, a single ASA level tends not to be adequate. We can't take one level two or four hours after the ingestion and say, oh, it's toxic, so the patient's fine. With suspected ASA ingestions, we really want to have two or even three levels spaced by two or four hours apart to show a clear decreasing trend or show that that, that number is not elevating over time. So a one-off at four hours doesn't work the way it would for a Tylenol ingestion. Oh, that's so good to know. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Lori, for being on the show, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, James. It's my pleasure.